Well, good morning, everyone. The Lord is risen. What a great day to be in the house of the Lord. And even as we were praying for families that are experiencing a time of grief, this is a day of hope. And I want to thank you for praying for Carol and my family as we are getting ready to go to Belgium to uh, say goodbye to Carol's mother, who went into the presence of the Lord a few days ago. But this is her best resurrection day yet, as she's in the presence of the Lord. And so we're so thankful for the hope that we have in the gospel. And if you're here as a visitor this morning, I hope you feel welcomed and greeted. And part of what we're doing this morning, we just want to love the Lord Jesus Christ. We want to proclaim him. And those of you joining us online, good morning. Glad you can be with us through media, through technology. And we're glad that we can gather together around the throne of grace as we study God's word together. The Battle of Waterloo in 1850, 1815, was so decisive that it decided the destinies of several countries in Europe, and that influence remains until our day. As the forces of the Emperor Napoleon battled those of the Duke of Wellington of England, the English people anxiously awaited news of the result. The only means of communication was a, si a system of signal lights that flashed across the English Channel. And so the English people were awaiting what is the message, what is happening with this great battle in Waterloo. And the fog became so dense that only part of the message could initially be read, Wellington defeated. And a sense of gloom and shame settled over the English people. So imagine their joy when the fog was lifted and the full message could be received, Wellington defeated the enemy. Well, at the Battle of Calvary 2,000 years ago, the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified, and he was laid in a tomb. And the hopes of his disciples were clouded by the fog of doubt, and they saw only one meaning to that event, Christ defeated. And for three days, the world languished in darkness because the Lord of light and life seemingly had been defeated. But imagine the joy that came to these first century believers on that glorious first Easter morning when the full message read, Christ defeated the devil, sin, and death. Many of us have had the privilege of hearing about the joy of the resurrection for many years, and as a result, we may be tempted to say, same old, same old. But this morning, let's hear about these events as if we're hearing about them for the first time and the impact of this transformational event in the history of the world. May our hearts be renewed with a sense of wonder and awe at what Jesus accomplished on that first Easter morning. May it be true that because Jesus is alive, that the glory of the resurrected Christ can continue to transform us more and more into the image of his Son, the Son of God. And so this morning we're going to take a little trip. We're going to retrace the paths of three people like us in so many ways, whose destinies were transformed when the fog of doubt and disappointment was lifted by the bright, shining light of Jesus rising from the dead. And as you hear their stories and as you follow along in the sermon outline and take notes to share with someone during the week, let the beauty and hope and joy of the resurrection just wash over your soul in a new way this morning. 
And so as we prepare to hear about these stories and what Jesus did, let us turn to the Lord in prayer. Our God and our Father, our Lord and our King, we're thankful that we can celebrate and remember and reflect and rejoice that Jesus is alive. And Father, we know that in that first century world, it was a world of darkness and it needed the light to shine into it. And Father, we are surrounded by a world of darkness into which the light still needs to shine. And so this morning we have come because we want to learn anew and afresh about the light of the world who sends us out to be the light of the world as we proclaim him, live for him, and point others to him. In these moments that we have gathered, with the authority of your word that is open before us, would you be our teacher and would you guide us? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the first person we look at this morning is James the Mocker. James the Mocker. Matthew 13, 55 Jesus is involved in a conflict with the Jewish leaders, and they, they state, Is not this Jesus, the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Imagine growing up with Jesus as an older brother. He's always perfect. He always obeys his parents, shares his toys with others, eats his vegetables, finishes his homework on time, makes his bed every day. Whenever you get into an argument, well, of course he always wins. In character and in ethics, he's flawless. He never hurts anyone, never plots or deceives or tricks anyone. He doesn't even swear when working in the family workshop, he accidentally hits his thumb. How would you respond in such a situation? And that is the situation that James faced in that first century situation. His lot was to grow up with Jesus as his older half-brother. Oh, they, they had the same mother, but they did not have the same father because we know that Jesus was the Son of God. So growing up with Jesus, James certainly would have heard the words of Jesus, would have seen the works of Jesus, but somehow for many years that did not comfort him. As Jesus grew into manhood and reached about the age of 30, he leaves the family and goes out into the world and begins a career as an itinerant preacher. He says things that are shocking, even embarrassing to James and to his Jewish family. He says he's the light of the world who shines into the darkness. He says, on the resurrection and the life, I have power over life and death. He claims that all of the prophets who had come before him were all talking about him. He proclaims to be the true manna that came down from heaven that gives life to all who would come and eat. He says he was the way, the truth, and the life, the only way one could get to God. And to top it off, he says that his true family is composed of those who believe in him as Savior and Lord, that his true family are brothers and sisters in Christ. It's the church. So what would James do? What would you do if this was your brother? And the Bible makes it clear that for most of James' life, he did not believe in Jesus. We're told in John chapter 7, verse 5, for not even his own brothers believed in him. And in an earlier account in Mark chapter 3, we're told that the family of Jesus was embarrassed by what they were saying. Look at what it says 
And when his family heard it, they heard what Jesus was teaching. They went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. His own family thought he was crazy. And there were many times in the ministry of Jesus where his own family wanted to stop him. You can see some of the references on the screen behind me. And it seems that even at the moments that we're commemorating this weekend, the trials, the sufferings, the crucifixion, the death, the burial of, res, uh, burial of Jesus, James is not present. His, name's, his name does not appear in the gospel accounts. Surely the sight of his half-brother being beaten and bloodied, humiliated, hanging naked on a cross between heaven and earth was simply too much of a humiliation and dishonor for him to be anywhere near those events. And yet, and yet, the history of the New Testament and early church history tells us that James was an early and strong leader in the church. His brothers and his sisters and his mother Mary, they were all gathered with the believers in the upper room after the resurrection. We see that James actually became a leader in the early church. He was the head of the church of Jerusalem. They had an important council recorded in Acts 15 where they had to decide those that came from Gentile backgrounds or those that came from Jewish backgrounds, how could they live together? And it was James who was the leader of that council. He gave a strong defense of the gospel of salvation by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. He's the one that dictated what should be written in the letter that would be sent out to the Gentile churches informing them how they could be in fellowship with Jewish believers in Jesus. And a study of his life shows that he was a great and pious man with a strong and widespread reputation of being holy who was a man of prayer to such a degree that he was known as Camel Knees for the amount of time that he spent on his knees in prayer. He was a godly and pious man. So what happened to James? How did this mocker turn into a pious man? And I think it's found in one short sentence in 1 Corinthians 15, 7. Then he appeared to James. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul is giving a list of those to whom Jesus appeared after the resurrection. And we see some of the usual characters, the apostles. We have Peter. We have some group of believers. We have Paul himself. But in this little phrase, I think we find the explanation of the dramatic transformation of James. Then Jesus appeared to James. Now, how would you have liked to have been an eyewitness to that encounter? What was going on in this relationship between those that had grown up as brothers, but now one is Lord, one is disciple? Imagine the emotions that were involved in that encounter. James never did get over it. Once you've encountered a living Christ, you, you never get over it. It'll take forever for you to get over it because all things are new. He makes all things new. He's the Lord of life. And James then would spend the rest of his life in service to his brother who had now become his Lord. In fact, early on in the history of the New Testament church, James wrote a letter. He even described himself in that letter as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the word that is translated servant is the word doulos, and in Greek it really means slave. A slave is someone who is possessed by another, who is owned by another. 
And he'd recognize that because of what Christ had done for him, that he was now Jesus' own possession and that Jesus was his Lord for whom he would serve the rest of his life. And he did. And in A.D. 62, there was a conflict that James had with the religious leaders of Jerusalem. You see, there was a temporary power vacuum among the Romans over who would lead Jerusalem. And so the Jewish people got together and they decided, hey, this is our time to get our way. And so they arrest James. And they put him on trial. And we're not quite sure what the charges actually were, but there's a spirited debate that takes place between James and the religious leaders. And at one point, they bring him up to the pinnacle of the temple. They place him on the very top of the temple. And they demand that he recant his faith in Jesus Christ. And the words that are recorded for us in early tradition is James said, Why are you asking me about the Son of Man? He is seated in heaven at the right hand of the great power and will come again on the clouds of heaven. He has simply repeated what Jesus himself said at the trial, at his own trial, that he was the anointed Holy One, the Son of Man, recorded in David, uh, Daniel chapter 7. And James knew that. And when James was facing even the possibility of his own life ending, he said, I affirm that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And in the midst of that great threat, he stood firm. In reaction to his firm response, the Jewish leaders threw him to the ground. He didn't yet die, so they started to stone him. And finally killed him with a fatal blow with a club to the head. And so it was that James the mocker became a martyr because of his faith in Jesus Christ. His half-brother who had appeared to him as the risen Messiah, the one who was victorious over the grave. You know, it might be that at times we're embarrassed to have anybody know that we're Christians. It might be at times that we're embarrassed that we're associated with the church or something that Jesus has done or the culture beats on us and says, really, you believe that stuff? And we're tempted to be ashamed. But James shows us the way. He's encountered the living Christ. He testifies that Jesus is risen from the dead and is worthy of following even unto the last breath if we should give our life for his glory. And Jesus continues to change and transform people's lives who will have eyes to see and ears to hear and who cry out to him and say, save me, and then they come to him. And even now this morning, perhaps you've come not sure that if you were to encounter your last breath on the way home from church, you don't know that you would be in heaven. My plea to you is this. Now is the day of salvation. Confess your sins and say, oh God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And cry out to Christ even now and say, appear to me as the risen Christ so that you can confess his holy name forever and ever. We've looked at James the mocker. Next we see Mary the outcast. Mary the outcast. And I'm going to pick up a reading in the gospel according to John chapter 20. It will be on the screen behind me. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They've taken away my Lord, and I, I do not know where they've laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. And Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? 
whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if he has carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. One of the most remarkable things that we see in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ is that he looks out for people. Every person, every type of person is welcome in Jesus' kingdom. And that's very different from religion as it was commonly seen in the ancient world and frankly even in many places today. But it was typical of Jesus' ministry that among the first people to whom he appeared after his resurrection was to someone who was on the margins of society. The gospel accounts agree that Mary was among the first ones to see the risen Christ. That flies in the face of the culture of that day, which did not permit women to give testimony in court. But here we have our God in his providence having as one of the first eyewitnesses a woman. How kind is our God. Thankfully, God does not operate by the norms of men or by expected cultural norms because he's the creator of all. He sets the norms. Now, perhaps you know the story of Mary Magdalene, but perhaps you know even more than what the scriptures actually say. So let's take a little review of her life. She had been delivered from seven demons. We see that in Luke chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, where Mary is part of a group of women who have been part of the traveling band with Jesus and the apostles and providing for them materially and financially supporting their ministry. Now, what the nature of her problem was or the reason for the demons in her life is not clearly stated. So some speculate, well, she must have been an immoral woman. Perhaps she's the woman who anointed Jesus' feet in Luke 7. Or others speculate that she is the woman who is caught in adultery in John chapter 8. But frankly, the Bible is silent. It does not make that clear connection. But whatever the nature of her illness, Mary had a spectacular deliverance. Obviously, there were some issues in her life, and being under the influence of seven demons meant that she was unclean, she would have been seen as impure, and it would have left her on the margins of society, which would have, guarded, which would have considered her unclean. And that day, the religious establishment and many of those that were practicing would avoid people like Mary. Thus, Mary's life would have been one of loneliness, emotional emptiness, spiritual hunger. She would long for deliverance and yearn for human contact, both of which would be denied her because she was on the margins of society. That is, they were denied until she met Jesus. The text simply says that he healed her. She had a need. She came to Jesus, and he healed her. That's still good counsel for today. We have a need. We take it to Jesus. We trust him with the results. And her response to the encounter that she had had with the living Christ, the response of her salvation shows the depth of her gratitude and love. So let's take briefly a look at how she's portrayed in the rest of the Gospels after she's experienced this wonderful deliverance, this wonderful healing. We've already seen in Luke 8, 
He was part of his traveling band that went with the disciples at least for a time and provided financially for them. So she would have been with the Savior. She would have walked with him. She would have listened to his teachings. In John chapter 19, we find that she is standing at the cross as a witness to the the crucifixion. She's standing with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and others. In Mark chapter 15, we're told that this Mary knew exactly the location of the tomb. She had stayed and watched the trials and saw where they had brought Jesus and in which tomb they had laid him. Where were the other disciples? We know that John followed in. Peter did for a season, but where were the others? They were gone. But Mary, this one that had been touched by the Lord Jesus Christ, stayed with him to the end. And so imagine now being Mary. You've experienced a life of loneliness and rejection and being on the margins of society. And and, and finally, you have a, a man that treats you with respect, shows you dignity and love something that the culture and the religion and the political establishment would not have done. Appreciates the role that she has to play. And a man who offers her dignity and redemption and hope and acceptance and honor and all the blessings that come from eternal life and knowing Jesus Christ. She was devoted to him. She stayed with him right to the end. And then in just a few hours of inexplicable evil, It seems as if her dreams have all come crashing down. She had watched her Jesus be humiliated and killed and buried. And she comes to the tomb because she wants to give him a proper burial. She wants to show her respects. And now even that has been denied her. For she comes and finds that the tomb is empty and the body is gone. And full of confusion and sadness and downtrodden by the effects of how people would have treated her. Her love for the Lord is shown by the tears that she sheds outside of the tomb in that garden on that first Easter morning. But the problem was in her tears, she couldn't really see. The angel spoke to her and she she couldn't quite understand. And so she says, where have you taken him? She sees another man whom she thinks is the gardener. She wasn't expecting to see Jesus. I wonder how often we're not like Mary. We get in a time of grief, a time of difficulty, a time of sadness, where life just isn't going the way we think it should go. And in our heartache and in our hurts and in our tears and in our fears, we can't see Jesus, who was promised to be with his people until the end of the age. Perhaps you are encountering a struggle this morning. If you're in Christ, I want you to know that Jesus sees you. He wants you just to fall into his arms and walk with him. Ask him to give you eyes to see what he is doing, even in the most painful of circumstances. So Jesus interacts with Mary, and she's still confused. And then, and then, you can almost hear it. He pronounces her name. Mary. How would this gardener know her name? And so her focus changes from the fact that the tomb is empty to now this man who knows her name, and she turns and recognizes him. And we have a living illustration of what Jesus had said earlier in the Gospels, where he said, I'm the good shepherd. My sheep hear my voice, and they come to me. I know them, and they follow me. This sheep had heard the voice of her shepherd, and she turns to him and cries out, Rabboni, 
Aramaic, which means the teacher of me, literally my teacher. What a statement of wonder and joy and worship. And so, of course, she lunges at him out of joy and out of wonder and out of amazement. He says, don't cling to me. She says, well, why not? Wouldn't this be the perfect time to just embrace? But Jesus is saying something more than that. He's saying it's while it is over, I'm not yet finished the path that I'm on. Yes, he had come to live a perfect life of righteousness and holiness and a fulfillment of the law and the prophets. Yes, he had died the sacrificial death that was required to atone for sins. But he had not yet gone back to the Father. And he had promised that he would ascend and go back to the Father. And so Mary could not hold him back. He had to carry out and complete the mission of returning to the Father. And so Mary would have to accept that divine plan just like we all do. For you see, Jesus had to return to the Father. And it was to Mary's advantage and to our advantage that Jesus did return to the Father. Because when he did, he poured out his Spirit, who now indwells each person at the moment that they believe in Christ. And so she couldn't hang on to him and say, stay here with me. He says, no, I am going. And when I go, I will send another comforter who will dwell within you, who will lead you. So instead of hanging on to Jesus, Jesus gave her a mission to do. Go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father. And she did. She gives us a great example of obedience. She did what the Lord told her to do, and she said what the Lord told her to say. And the one who had given her joy and purpose and hope was now giving her a task and a purpose and a goal in life and a reason to keep on going. I imagine she made her way back really quickly to tell the disciples what she had encountered. The resurrected Lord had refreshed this downtrodden woman, pushed aside by society, but loved and cherished by her Lord. And so it was that the outcast would now become an announcer, an announcer of the greatest news that has ever been said, I have seen the Lord and he is risen from the dead. And if you're in Christ this morning, that's your task. Go and announce what you've seen and heard. Go and announce what the Lord has done and who he is. And it might be this morning that you think, well, Christ could never accept me. But look at the example of Mary. Whatever your past lifestyle, whatever the path of life you were on before, the Lord is still the same, able to save and rescue and restore and give a mission and give purpose for life. The same one who would cause the mocker to become a martyr has the outcast become an announcer. And he can do another miracle even today in those who will bow in obedience. Well, after we've seen Mary the outcast, thirdly, we see Thomas the doubter. And we continue with the reading in John chapter 20. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. 
Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not believe, do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. On that first Easter morning, Jesus appeared to his disciples. In the evening of that first Easter morning, Jesus appeared to his disciples. And they're amazed. They're overjoyed. They can't believe it. But they're still cowards because they've been hiding out, afraid of what the Jews might do to them for fear they might do to them the same thing that he had done to Jesus. And so they're hiding out in the room for fear of being arrested. But Thomas is not with them. We know the story well. We don't know why Thomas was not there. Speculation is just that. Probably fruitless. Yet when we see Thomas earlier in the gospel according to John, we see a loyal but pessimistic disciple. Earlier in John chapter 11, upon hearing that Lazarus has died and that Jesus wants to go back to Judea to see him, Thomas is in despair. And we're told why. He knew that if they went back to Judea, the order was given to stone Jesus and put him to death. And so Thomas says, well, let us go also with him that we may also die. In John 14, as Jesus is explaining that I'm going to the Father to prepare a place for you, to my Father's house, Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? He was a loyal disciple, but he still needed to grow in his understanding of who this Jesus was. So perhaps in the midst of the commotion and the confusion and the chaos of those previous days, Thomas was too fearful, I don't know, to join the disciples on that first resurrection morning. But I have to say I'm thankful that he wasn't there on that first Easter Sunday. Because in the providence of God, the fact that he was absent that first Sunday but was there on that second Sunday, has given us one of the greatest declarations of the divinity of Jesus Christ that we have in our Bibles. Thomas is not there on that first Sunday, but he later does, we're told, meets with the disciples. They tell him that they have seen him, but he doesn't want to be so easily fooled. He wanted some type of empirical proof that Jesus had risen from the dead. He wanted evidence. Look at the depth of his unbelief. He wouldn't even accept the testimony of his colleagues with whom he had lived and ministered for up to three years. Unless I put my hand in his scars, unless I touch his side, I will never believe. And I wonder if at times we're not like Thomas. In our better moments, we have seen God do great things. We've seen him answer prayers. We've seen him give provision. We've seen him walk with us we've seen him teach great things in our lives but then life gets difficult we cry out well unless I see it we say that seeing is believing but we find in this passage that that's not necessarily an idea that's pleasing to the Lord over the long haul so one week later on that following Sunday they're all gathered together and Thomas is there and Jesus shows up and then we look at how he deals with Thomas. Now, off earlier in the 
gospel according to John, Jesus had actually rebuked the man for insisting upon seeing a sign. But here, he gives the evidence that Thomas was looking for. He greets the disciples and starts right in with Thomas. Now, how would you like to be in Thomas' shoes at that moment? Because the Lord could have laid into him. Thomas, did you not see the people that I healed? Did you not see the power that I had to drive out the spirits? Were you gazing at the clouds when I multiplied the loaves and the fishes and fed the crowds? Were you daydreaming when I resuscitated Lazarus from the dead? Where were you when I walked on the water, Thomas? He could have done that. Maybe that's what we would have done. But that's not what Jesus did. He simply spoke to him and said, put your finger here. And there must have been a shock on Thomas's face when Thomas realized that Jesus began with the very words that Thomas had uttered. How did he know? How did he know what, what I had said, Thomas might ask. And I think Jesus is showing us in a subtle way that he knows all things. And he's in all places. And he knew what had been spoken in that room the previous week. And it's a reminder to us then that according to Revelation chapter 2, we have a Jesus who knows the hearts and the minds of men. That means he knows our hearts and our minds and the thoughts that percolate in our heart and in our minds. And what we say, even what we utter in a private corner or even in the recesses of our heart. And we should allow that truth to instruct us on how we use words in our own life and how we think and how we talk. But Jesus responds to Thomas with mercy, with patience. He gives him the evidence that he asked for. He says, stop doubting and believe. We don't actually know if Thomas actually reached out and touched him. Maybe it was enough that he just saw the evidence. But he cries out, my Lord and my God. And so it is that the doubter becomes a worshiper. And it's an appropriate response on his part. It's how we should respond when we catch a glimpse of the Lord's glory, power, grace. And so Jesus accepts the faith of Thomas and deals with him gently and accepts his acclamation, but then also deals with him firmly by saying, well, if you need physical evidence, that's okay, but even greater is to take me at my word and not to require such evidence. We're so quick to say that seeing is believing. But if we've been walking with the Lord, I think we can say with Augustine, believing is seeing. I believe in order that I might see. Are you finding it hard to trust God with something this morning? Are you waiting until the Lord gives you some type of sign that you think you deserve from his hand? Let me suggest a different track. Think about what he's already done. Think about what he's already said. Think about what he's already promised. The promises in the scriptures, the answered prayers that you've seen, his character. Does that sound like one who would abandon you in your moment of need? So the doubter became a worshiper. One day when the late great evangelist John Wesley was returning home from a service, he was robbed. And the thief found much to his chagrin, that this Christian minister had only a little bit of money and some Christian literature. And as he started to leave, Wesley called out after him, Stop! I have something more to give you. And the surprised robber paused and he said, My friend, you may live to regret this sort of life. 
and you ever do, here's something to remember. The blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. And the thief scurried away. And Wesley prayed that his words might have an impact. Years later, Wesley is conducting another meeting, and he's approached by a stranger, a stranger who is now a believer in Christ and a successful businessman, and to his surprise, he finds it was the one who had robbed him years earlier. And this man says, Mr. Wesley, I owe it all to you. But Wesley replied to this now transformed man, oh, no, my friend, not to me, but to the precious blood of Jesus that cleanses from all sin. The power of Jesus Christ, resurrected from the dead, continues to transform lives. He still appears to the one who up to this point has mocked his name and empowers him to live and even die for the cause of the kingdom of God. He continues to appear to the one whom society has rejected, but who longs for acceptance and purpose and gives him a mission and purpose in life. He continues to appear to the one who has doubts, though he has already seen enough to know better and will elicit a response of worship and dedication. And he can appear to each one of us. Have you seen him come to you with the eyes of faith? Has he delivered you from the tyranny of your sin and the fear of death? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, but turn to Christ. And say, yes, on this Easter Sunday morning, I too want to experience the power of the resurrection, the forgiveness of sins, the hope of eternal life. So maybe you've known Christ for a while, as is the case of many of us in this room this morning. But there's the temptations of life, there's the struggles that come with time, and our memories start to forget what God has done. And maybe this morning we just need a fresh touch of his spirit. And if that's the case, just let him know. He's ready to hear. He's ready to respond. He's ready to touch. He's ready to cleanse. He's ready to forgive. Let's stop hiding and just come to the one who alone can save us and who can transform us. And let us be those who will cry out one day with great joy, my Lord and my God. Let us pray. Father, we thank you that the resurrection is true. And we thank you that we have a great hope if we are in Christ that one day we will join the throngs of heaven that cry out, worthy is the lamb who was slain and who is now enthroned as the king of kings and the Lord of lords and who rule the nations one day with a rod of iron. Oh, Father, I pray this morning that those within the sound of my voice, who are wavering in doubt this morning, would waver no more as they just turn to Christ and say, save me. And I pray for each one of us that we would leave this place this morning knowing that we have met with the living God and that this week you would cause us to be quick to share with others what you are doing in our lives, that we would be your spokespeople, as you lead us by your power and by your spirit to let those around us know that there is hope. Hope for the one who is the mocker. Hope for the one who is the doubter. Hope for the one who is the outcast. For we know, Father, that is what we once were. But in Christ, we are now children of the living God. 
Thank you for that great mercy and that great grace and for a great gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.